Own Your Creativity, Episode 83. Hello everyone out there in Own Your Creativity land. You're in for a blast today with my guest James Clear, author of Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. James is an author and speaker focused on habits, decision making and continuous improvement. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Entrepreneur, Time, and on CBS This Morning. His website receives millions of visitors each month and hundreds of thousands subscribe to his popular email newsletter, including me. <laughs> you can sign up for his newsletter at jamesclear.com. James is a regular speaker at Fortune 500 companies and his work is used by teams in the NFL, NBA, and MLB. Through his online course, The Habits Academy, Clear has taught more than 10,000 leaders, managers, coaches, and teachers. The Habits Academy is the premier training platform for individuals and organizations that are interested in building better habits in life and work. You can learn more at habitsacademy.com. Now, I've been reading James's blog for many years. I first stumbled upon it uh, when um, I saw one of his posts about the importance of sleeping habits, and it literally was my wake-up call on this issue. And I immediately set about changing my approach to sleep as a result. But I'll leave it there and let James tell you later on in the show, in his own words, why this is so important. So welcome to the show, James. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So now we, before we dive into the usual questions that make up the Own Your Creativity podcast, uh, and we may or may not get to all of them, this uh, this interview, I'd like you to talk about two things first. And one is how you came to write this book. And the second one is the very personal and dramatic story that led you to understand the power of habits. So for the first question, I know many of my listeners often ask themselves, how do they do that? For some, it seems like a mysterious process of getting a book out there, especially from such a major publisher as yours, Avery, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House. So please, um, can you elaborate on that for us? Sure. So the process of getting a book deal with Penguin was kind of a, a windy road for me. Uh, and we probably can trace it back to about three years or so before we actually signed the book deal. Um, the one habit, the writing habit that changed the scope and the trajectory of my work was writing a new article every Monday and Thursday. So Beginning in November of 2012, I wrote my first article on jamesclear.com, and I decided that I would write about habits and performance improvement, and in those early days, I was writing about other topics, too. I wrote about health and fitness and uh, medicine and some other things, and uh, I decided that I was going to write an article every Monday and Thursday. Now, I don't think that there's anything magical about that pace, but that was the pace that I felt like I could do two quality articles a week. And if I tried to do more than that, I, I felt like the quality was going to suffer. Um, but it needs to be something consistent. And you hear this from a lot of creatives. Ira Glass, the uh, NPR host of This mm -hmm. American Life. You know, Ira says something like he spent the first 17 years of his career uh, just kind of developing his taste where he was early on in his career for the first few years. He he just focused on getting a new uh, episode out each week. And this was kind of like that same period for me. I, I think you need, especially for a writer, early on, you need to figure out what your voice is. You need to figure out what you want to write about, what's important to you. And those are questions that you could sit around and think about them, but I feel like the only way to actually discover the answer is to, to write consistently. So I, I really needed that period uh, to do that. 
Um, now at the same time, I, I focused my site, everything around it. I was giving the articles away for free, but on every page I had some ability or some way to sign up for the email list. And so I was focused on growing my email list, which is what I actually considered to be my real audience of readers. If you weren't on the email list, it was just traffic to the website. Mm -hmm. If you were on the email list, then you were a reader. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and thankfully, you know, I put a lot of work into that as well, uh, and thought a lot about that. And over the course of the first year or two, the site grew fairly quickly. Um, and the great thing about writing two articles a week is that at the end of the month, you have eight or nine articles. And if you try your best each time, you're going to have two or three that are decent. Mm -hmm. And every marketing strategy is easier when you have two or three good articles each month. So, you know, things like reaching out to podcasts to do an interview or reaching out to um, major publications or magazines to see if they would run an excerpt or republish an article. All of those tasks were much easier because I had uh, so much content to rely on. And um, so in that way, I think uh, that was how I built the audience. And then after about two years of that, which I don't want to gloss over that because, you know, I feel like a lot of the time, whether this is writing or getting in shape, for example, or many different types of goals or habits, the real answer is like, just work hard for two years. I mean, most people mm -hmm. think they need to find a better diet plan or a better workout program, but really it's like, just don't miss a workout for two years and then come back to me and talk about whether it's working or not. Um, so <laughs> often great. we switch gears so quickly that we never, you know, we never stick with it long enough to see if we find a result. So, um, so I did that for a few years and then after about two years, I started getting more interest from publishers. I had a couple publishers reach out individually. Uh, Penguin was one of them actually. Uh, and then I had two or three agents also reach out and, I, and say like, hey, you know, I've seen some of your work. I'd be interested in talking about working with you at some point. I don't know if you're interested in the book. Um, so they started coming to me a little bit. And then after like six months or so, so about two and a half years in, um, I started getting interested in this idea of writing a book about habits. I had been writing about habits in my weekly, article, weekly articles for, uh, you know, for over two years. Mm -hmm. I felt like I had enough that I wanted to say that I could actually like have a book. You know, there are so many books that really should be like a 20 page report or a, an essay, <laughs> right. um, but they get stretched into 200 pages. So, so I had enough content at that point. And, uh, and so then I started reaching out to some other people who I knew that were authors or authors that I respected to get their take on, you know, should I get an agent or not? I didn't even know, you know, I, I knew very little in the beginning and, um, through those conversations, I ended up getting introduced to an agent who also, just through dumb luck, happened to be one of the agents that had reached out to me as well. Oh, and I goodness. thought, okay, you know, if the, in this case, if I'm if I'm being told to work with this person because she's great and she's reaching out to me on her own, that seems like a good signal. Yeah. So we had a couple of calls, and uh, and that was how I found my agent. And then um, and then once I got her, uh, we worked on the book proposal. And mm -hmm. that, for me, that took three months. Um, there's no reason that it has to take three months, but I think in practice, it's almost always going to take somebody that long. Yeah. It's probably only about four to six weeks of real work, but just between the back and forth and editing and, you know, thinking through the different phases, um, about half of the proposal was marketing. So like who I was going to reach out to and how we were going to promote it to my list and so on. And then the other half was editorial. So I had one sample chapter and then uh, I had an outline for another, I think the, the proposal version, I think had 12 chapters. Um, so and so I had an outline for the other 11. So how important was it to have that marketing component to your proposal? 
Well, if you talk to publishers, they probably wouldn't tell you this. They would probably say, well, it's really about the idea. And, you know, like we need to, we also care about the marketing, of course, and whatever. It's like a balance between the two. Personally, um, we, so we pitched that proposal to, I think it was either 17 or 19 publishers. And we got interviews. We set up meetings. I went to New York for a week and we set up meetings with seven. Mm-hmm. And, uh, which was great. It was a great level of interest. And then we ended up getting bids from, uh, five of them. Wow. Now, <laughs> I don't think that they would have let me in the room that they even would have answered the, the proposal if I didn't have a large email list. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that they would say that. I think they would probably come up with different reasons for why they were interested in the book. But I think if I'm being honest, that was the reason. That I th- yeah. They- I think having a platform, um, is, is a really important component these days. Yeah, I, I just don't know that they, I just don't know that they would give it a real interest if they didn't see a large platform behind it. And at that point, when we pitched the uh, the proposal, I think I had two hundred twenty five thousand email subscribers, something like that. Mm-hmm. So it was a it was a fairly sizable platform um, when we made the uh, the pitch. But yeah. anyway, so that was the process, and then um, and then we got in front of the publishers and uh, got a couple bids and ended up you know uh, going with the one that we we felt best about and uh, and then I signed the deal and that was uh, November of 2015 and the book is com- coming out in October of 2018 so it was about a 3 year process from uh, signing the deal or pitching the proposal to um, to publishing the book so it, you really have to be patient. It's a long process and there's lots of moving parts. So it's not like as soon as the publisher says yes and, you know, the next day or the next month, you're good to go, right? Yeah, I think especially for the first book, um, you know, if you really look at it from beginning to end, the book is coming out uh, about six years after I started jamesclare.com and mm-hmm. started that uh, two twice a week writing. So it's really been a five or six year process to build the platform, get the deal and so on. Now, now that the first book has been done, um, you know, I'm hopeful that it will do well. I think the book is great. I, I asked for actually, it was supposed to be done in two years and I asked for an extra year to do additional research and writing and, um, they gave it to me and I, I think the book really benefited from that. I'm, I'm very proud of the book that was finished and I hope that, um, because of that, the book will do very well. And if that's the case, then getting another book deal and getting the next book finished, well, that should be much faster. It probably won't be six years until the next one's out. Maybe it'll be, I mean, if you want it, it could be one or two. For right. me, it might be two, three or something because I, I seem to take my time and kind of overwrite. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, my, my point being that especially for the first one, uh, because you're building the platform and doing so many other things, um, it takes, I think it takes longer even for that one. So when you started your blog, did you have in mind as an end goal that you would want to have a book out there? Or was there a different reason? <laughs> no, I definitely didn't. Yeah. Um, I didn't even know that I wanted to be a writer, to be honest. <laughs> um, I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I wanted to have my own business. Um, and so that was where I started. And I actually started a couple other business ideas before I, I launched jamesclear.com. I did like some iPhone apps and played around with some other website ideas. Um, and yeah, I, it was a, I kind of had like a two year period before I launched the site where I was trying out different business things. And one of the good pieces of advice that I got early on, and I think that this could apply to writing books as well is try things until something comes easily. And Ah. so I, I tried different business ideas until I came across one, which just happened to be writing about habits um, on my site until I came across one that went quicker and moved better than the others. And it was, 
it was fairly obvious, uh, you know, compared to the other things that I was doing at the time or had tried in the recent past. You know, I was working really hard and not getting that much result. Uh, and then I, suddenly I started writing about habits and continuous improvement and peak performance and just the, all these ideas that I write about now. Yeah. And for whatever reason, um, my angle on that or my voice with that or um, my uh, approach to those topics seemed to resonate with more people. And so that was the idea that came easily. And, um, you know, at no point was I trying things that weren't interesting to me. I, I was interested in all of them. But the rest of the world just wasn't interested in, in some of the other stuff. And so it took me a while to find an idea that um, that seemed to stick with other people as well. Right. So in your book, Atomic Habits, you share a really personal and dramatic story that led you to understand the power of habits. Can you tell us about that and just take us through that journey? Sure. So. My sophomore year of high school, uh, right at the end, between my sophomore and junior year, I was hit in the face with a baseball bat. And so it was a, a very serious injury. I, um, you know, I suffered multiple seizures over the next day. I shattered my eye, both eye sockets. I was hit right in the, the middle of my head. Um, wow. Broke my nose, broke the bone behind my nose. Uh, I had to be air carried to the hospital in a helicopter. Overnight, I couldn't breathe on my own. I was placed into a medically induced coma. Um, it was a very long and arduous process to recover from that. So I, uh, eventually the next day they released me from the coma and my breathing had rebounded enough where I could, I could breathe on my own. Um, and then the process of recovery began. And so I had to go to physical therapy and we did really basic stuff. I mean, I, I practiced how to walk on a straight line. Um, wow. I could drive for, uh, for eight of the next nine months, um, it was hard for me, not only because like that period of time, I mean, you know, I just got my driver's license. So then suddenly I couldn't drive again. So there was like, you got this freedom and then it was taken away. Mm -hmm. um, it was hard because I, I really cared a lot about baseball. Uh, my, my dad had played professionally for the St. Louis Cardinals in the minor leagues. And I had, you know, had this dream of playing professionally as well. And, uh, so then, you know, I wasn't able to play for a year and I came back and uh, I got cut from the team the next year. So that was um, hard to deal with. And then by the time I got to the end of my high school career, about a year and a half, two years later, uh, I had barely even played any uh, any varsity baseball. So I didn't really have any colleges uh, for the most part that were interested in me. Um, and I was still really important to me and I wanted to perform well. So. Anyway, I ended up uh, I ended up going to Denison University, a small Division three liberal arts school, and uh, I didn't know it at the time, but it ended up being the perfect fit, the the ideal place for me. And so I, as I started um, my first year there, I, I knew I wasn't going to be starting on the team, but I was on the team, and I was happy about that. And I started, uh, you know, getting my my habits in order. I started trying to get my life in order. So I did little things, you know, like I made sure that I kept my room neat and tidy. And I built these uh, sleep habits where I would go to bed early each night, which is, you know, kind of weird uh, among college kids. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> I, that's, and, uh, I, that's what I thought, too, when I was reading it. I thought, wow, it's so unusual. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, well, I, you know, I hung out with my friends and everything like like all the normal kids do. But these little these little habits kind of like gave me a sense of control over my life. Mm. They, they made me feel like I was, uh, I wasn't like the victim of this, uh, event or something. It was just, it was just something that happened to me and I was working through it now, you know, like right. I, I had the reins again. Um, and, uh, so 
that process of building those habits, well, I just tried to find, I didn't even have the language for this at the time, but looking back, what I was doing is I was trying to find ways to get 1% better each day. or just mm -hmm. trying to make some small marginal improvement each day. And uh, gradually that started to ripple into other areas of my life. You know, so I started getting really good grades and um, keeping my, you know, my place neat and tidy and uh, building strength training habits. It was the first time in my life where I started uh, training consistently in the gym every week. And uh, I started to see results too. Like they, you know, they didn't come right away, but within a year or two years, then I was starting on the team, then I was named the all-conference team. Um, and by the time I got to the end of my career, uh, I ended up being an academic All-American and um, you know, winning a bunch of awards and so on my final year. And I never, you know, I never played professionally. I don't really, this isn't some, you know, I hope this doesn't come across as too uh, boastful or anything like that. But, but what I do feel like I did was I fulfilled my potential. And yeah. that was a very uh, meaningful experience because it showed me that everybody faces challenges in life, right? We all have stuff that we go through. And this injury just happened to be one of the things that I went through. But those are just individual events. And really, over the broad span of time, your habits are what determine the quality of your life and your results. And if I was willing to get 1% better or make a small improvement each day, even if I did suffer uh, these painful things or these um, setbacks every now and then, well, over enough time span, uh, things were going to compound and work for me in a positive fashion. And so in a lot of ways, I didn't really have a choice. Like uh, transforming my life or doing, making some radical improvement that it just, to be honest, it just wasn't an option for me at that point. Like I was, mm -hmm. I had to take it slow. And so, uh, by having my hand forced in that way, that was sort of the first time where I realized how much small improvements on a daily basis can add up over time. And, uh, that was kind of the story of how I learned about small habits. And then it wasn't until five or six years later that I started writing about them and, and learning the science behind why that worked. Right. And, you know, you say 1%, you just wanted to get 1% uh, improvement in, in a day. And something that I say to my, my writing students is that just set the timer for five minutes and, and write. You know, you, you know, everybody's busy, but you'd be amazed. You know, if you end up with 100 words in those five minutes, and if you do it every single day for 365 days, you have 36,500 words in a year. Right. There you go. That's a book. <laughs> it's a book, you know? So, um, yeah, so I'm a, a big believer in, in that too. But I think that people don't believe that. They don't believe, oh, what can 1% do? Oh, what can 100 words a day do? But it's cumulative. Well, this is one of the challenges yeah. is that on any given day, making a choice that's 1% better or 1% worse is incredibly easy to dismiss. Wow. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, there's no, you don't feel anything. The difference between uh, eating a burger and fries and eating a salad for lunch, it doesn't, yeah. there's no difference on the scale tonight. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no difference. There's not even really that much difference uh, in the moment when you're eating it or when you're an hour or two later, like you get to the afternoon and you, there's, you know, nothing has really changed. There's no transformation in your life, but it's the compound effect of doing that, you know, three days a week or four days a week for five years. It's not until two or three or five or 10 or 15 years later that the effects of your daily habits become truly apparent. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that that's the, one of the, the challenges, both for good and bad habits. I mean, you know, right. you can, 
for good habits, you can study, you know, you study Spanish for a half hour tonight, you still don't know the language. So what's the, you know, it's easy to dismiss that. And same thing is true for procrastination. I mean, most of the time, if you put off writing another chapter tonight or writing a report for work or something, most of the time there will be time to finish it tomorrow. Uh, so it's easy to dismiss it, but it's only when you let those like little choices of a small error or a little mistake compound that it becomes really toxic. And yeah. so for that reason, I think that habits are incredibly powerful over the long run and un unfortunately easy to dismiss in the short run. And that's why, in my opinion, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I wrote the book, but it's also why it's important to understand the details of how habits work and how we get nudged in certain directions all day long so that you can design a system that's working for you rather than against you. And you end up with really different results in the long run. Yeah. Well, I mean, your story alone is so inspiring. And, and I know that we're going to get a lot of great stuff from, from your book when it comes out. Now, something that I had mentioned at the beginning was um, – I realized how important sleep was um, after mm -hmm. I read your read your uh, blog on it. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that and and why it it is so important? Sure. Well, I mean, sometimes I'll say this. You see a lot of articles about uh, here how to double your productivity or some strategy to you know get twice as much done each day. And uh, I mean, honestly, if you really want the biggest productivity hack, it's get eight hours of sleep each night. Mm -hmm. um, that would that would probably be the thing that would make the single biggest quality difference in the quality and uh, frequency or efficiency of your work. But all right, I mean, from a basic level, if you just break it down biologically, everyone needs to sleep, um, and so it's a, a basic fundamental human need. Secondly. And this is one of the fascinating things that I discovered in the research and was mentioned probably in the article that you, uh, that you checked out. There, there's a really interesting study done where they broke uh, the subjects into three groups. And they had one group that was sleeping eight hours a night, one group that was sleeping six hours a night, and one group that was sleeping four hours a night. Now, as you would expect, the people in the group sleeping eight hours a night uh, performed the best on cognitive tasks and different puzzles and uh, tests that they had the, the subjects do. And the people who only slept four hours a night uh, performed the worst. But what was really remarkable was the six-hour group. So if you only got six hours of sleep, and I believe it was for two weeks in a row, so if you, if you uh, got six hours a night for two weeks in a row, one – your, cog your cognitive performance declined to the same degree as if you had stayed up for 48 hours straight. So wow. by the end of six hours a night for two weeks, it's like you've, you're performing at the same levels if you stayed up for two days in a row, which just seemed crazy to me. But this is the second part and the part that's really crucial. When they asked the subjects if they thought their performance had declined, for the first two or three days that they got six hours, they said, yeah, I think I'm, I'm declining a little bit. But after that, they said, no, I think I've adapted. I, I think I'm like, you know, I've, I've settled in. They didn't even realize that their own performance was really? declining. Wow. And so what's funny about this is if you talk to people about the research and you say, you know, I, I don't know what the exact percentage of it is, but to give you a, just a rough estimate, um, you know, let's say 90 or 95 percent of people need seven and a half hours is actually the, it seems like that's more or less the cutoff uh, most of the research finds. Most people need about that much or more. Let's call it somewhere between seven and nine hours for the average person to perform at their at their best. Um, but if you talk to people, if you mention this, 
some people will say like, oh, well, you know, I, that might be true for some people, but I'm fine. Um, and what they're doing, I, it is true. There are some people out there, five or 10% of the population that can get by on less, but it's probably not a wise strategy to bet that you are the outlier. Um, it's very unlikely that you're the person who it's fine for you to get five hours a night or five and a half or whatever it is. Um, and then of course, uh, parents, especially parents of young children, uh, are also tend to be resistant to the strategy. You know, they'll say things like, oh, well, clearly he doesn't have kids or he doesn't know what it's like to have it. Tell my two-year-old that or whatever. Um, which is fine. I'm not, I'm not de denying that, uh, having young children is difficult and will cut in on your sleep, but it doesn't mean that the, that the facts are not true anymore. It's still true that sleep is just as important. It probably is even more important for a young parent. Um, but just because you can't implement it or you're not at a stage in your life where you can use it doesn't mean that the idea is, uh, is not accurate. So anyway, the punchline there is that, uh, getting sleep consistently, not only increases your cognitive and physical performance, but also uh, if you don't do it, it's very easy to lie to yourself about uh, where you're at and how your performance is declining. And the thing that really shocked me in that article that you wrote about sleep was that it's a cumulative thing. So that if you are chronically undersleeping, you it, it's a cumulative effect and, and you can actually have uh, similar symptoms to uh, memory loss and, um, and even like Alzheimer-like type um, things and that it, it, it can seem like you're, you know, under the influence of alcohol <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and that you don't get that back. You can't reverse that unless you get that sleep, you know, so if you've been missing two hours every, every day uh, for the month, that, that unless you sleep that somehow, and get catch up on it you you won't reverse the effects yeah well uh i mean imagine how cognitively delayed or what type of memory loss functions you would have if you stayed up for two days straight so you would yeah. you know you'd, you'd be feeling kind of loopy yeah um but uh but yeah you can't really you know if you get uh you know if you should be getting eight hours and you only get seven for six days uh you can't sleep 14 hours on saturday right. and expect to be you know like suddenly back to normal now of course, the, the answer to this is the same as the answer to most other habits, which is, well, let's not obsess about getting 14 hours of sleep and catching up all at once or anything, the same way that you shouldn't obsess over working out for six hours straight if you want to lose weight. Um, let's just get healthy habits established and focus on making a marginal improvement, a 1% improvement. Mm -hmm. And by doing that each day, eventually we'll turn around a month or two months or three months from now, and you're going to be in a really good place. So the focus, uh, like most habits, I think the focus should be making on small improvements, environment design changes, uh, slight shifts in your approach that are sustainable. Because yeah. really what you're, I mean, this is, this comes back to, to habits in general, but people will ask questions like, how long does it take to build a new habit? Or, um, you know, how, how long do I have to work before this habit will get established? And it, there are all kinds of, you know, wives tales and made up lines about 21 <laughs> days or 30 days or hundred days or whatever. And there have been research studies done on it. And usually it takes two or three months for a habit to get established. But I actually think that that line of questioning is uh, broken or misguided in some sense, mm -hmm. because the, the idea behind that question is, once I build this habit, then I'll have like crossed the finish line and I won't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah. And in fact, a habit, the real answer to the question, how long do I have to do it before it becomes a habit is forever yes. because once you stop doing it, it's no longer a habit. Mm -hmm. So 
um, the what you're really looking is not for what you're really looking for is not a, a finish line to cross or some life changing result to achieve. What you're looking for is a new lifestyle to live. Uh, and so the same thing is true if you're trying to build a writing habit. To be a writer, you need to embody that identity. And the way to embody that identity is to write every day uh, right. or to write at some you know consistent pace that works for you. But the point is you need to have the habit of waking up every Saturday morning and writing for 10 minutes in order to be a writer. That's what makes you a writer. It's not having a published book. It's not having some accolade. It's not uh, having a good idea for a story. It's just doing the act of writing. And, um, and so the habit is the way that you embody the identity and the way to think about a habit, I believe, is as a lifestyle to live and not a finish line to cross. That's wonderful. I, I find that really clarifies, you know, the idea that it's, you have to wake up every day and recommit to, to the goals that you want for yourself. And, and you can't ever stop it because if you do, then you're not reaching those goals or you're not creating that habit. It is something that has to happen every day. I'd like to read um, a paragraph from, from your book here. Habits do not restrict freedom. They create it. In fact, the people who don't have their habits handled are often the ones with the least amount of freedom. Without good financial habits, you will always be struggling for the next dollar. Without good health habits, you will always seem to be short on energy. Without good learning habits, you will always feel like you're behind the curve. If you're always being forced to make decisions about simple tasks, when should I work out, where do I go to write, when do I pay the bills, then you have less, free, less time for freedom. It's only by making the fundamentals of life easier that you can create the mental space needed for free thinking and creativity. And when I read this, I was jumping up and down in agreement because this summer I ran one of my free writing challenges on Facebook. And the question of where do I go to write as well as just finding the time to write comes up all the time with people who say they want to write but can't seem to make it happen. So you alluded to this just a little bit ago, but what advice would you give my audience about how to build their writing habit? Well, so I have a friend who is a poet. And his goal is simply to write one sentence each day. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really like that idea. And it leads into what my advice would be for how to build a writing habit, which is that so often when we think about a goal that we want to accomplish or something new that we want to build into our lives, a new habit that we want, we think about the end result. And so we optimize for what I would call the finish line. Like, like we optimize for having the book written or right. having lost 30 pounds or something like that. We think about the outcome. Right. But instead, I think it's far more useful to optimize for the starting line than the finish line. And what I mean by that is make it as easy as possible to get going. And the reason is twofold. The first is, you know, of course, you take my friend's example who writes a, a sentence each day. There are going to be some days where you write a sentence and you're like, oh, words are flowing. And so then all of a sudden you have a page or two pages or whatever written. But that's not even the real reason to do it. In the beginning, the real reason is that there are all sorts of details, logistical things, boring things you don't think about, something that you never would uh, envision when you're thinking about the end result, that you have to get figured out to build the habit. So, for example, if you take a writing habit, yeah, questions like, where am I going to do this? Is it going to be on my couch? Is it going to be at the kitchen table in my bedroom? Do I go to a coffee shop? Am I going to stay after work for an extra half hour and do it in like a conference room or, you know, uh, at my desk? Um, you have to figure out that. So where's the physical space? 
then you have to figure out the timing. When am I, you know, when is the right time to do this each day? Now, for some people, a lot of the time I recommend it's good to build a, a new habit early in the morning because the later you get in the day, the more likely it is that other people's agendas start creeping in and you start putting out fires and pretty soon it gets to be five o'clock and you're exhausted and you know, you don't have the, the time and energy to, to do the thing you want to do anymore. So early in the morning is a great place for many people, but imagine you have three little young kids and getting them ready for school and they're running around and like trying to do stuff in the morning is it's just chaos at the house. So that wouldn't be a good place to fit that in. So building a small habit, like writing one sentence each day, it doesn't sound like it's going to do much, but for the first couple of weeks, it forces you to figure out some of these practical details about when and where something is going to happen. I mean, if you can't fit one sentence in and figure out how to optimize that and do it two weeks in a row, what chance do you have of, you know, writing a book chapter or something right. like that? You need to, <laughs> you need to figure out those, those core details. Then once you have that standardized, you can start to focus on how to optimize it. And so that's kind of my little mantra is standardize before you optimize. Um, so once you make it the standard in your life and you're writing one sentence a day for two weeks or three weeks or so on, then you can start to think more about what you need to do to turn it into, you know, to reach the goal that you have. So, you know, how can I stretch this into 15 minutes, a 15 minute block each day? Or how can I um, outline the book that I need to write so that then I can start knocking down one chapter at a time? I had a, uh, I had a reader who ended up losing over 100 pounds. And the way that he did it was he went to the gym, but only for five minutes. And after it, once it got to five minutes, he had to leave. And he did this for like six, the first six weeks. So he would show up, drive to the gym, get out, walk into the, um, around the machines and maybe do something for five minutes. And as soon as the timer went off on his watch, he left. And after about six weeks, he said, you know, I mean, this is kind of ridiculous. I'm coming here every day. Like I should, I should start staying longer and doing a better workout. <laughs> um, but his approach there, there's a lot to be learned from that. It's the exact opposite of what most people do when they try to build a habit. When most people want to get in shape, they get all amped up about finding the best diet program or finding the best workout program. Then for a week or two, they have a ton of motivation and they go like four days a week and they work out for 45 minutes at a time and they're sweating like crazy and they want to feel exhausted at the end of each workout. But pretty soon they burn out. And I think it's because we don't realize how important it is to master the habit of showing up. It's only when you master the art of showing up that you have the chance to uh, optimize things. A habit needs to be established before it can be improved. So mm. that would be my uh, that would be my first bit of suggestion. And I think a good way to do that, a good like rule of thumb, is what I call the two minute rule. So most habits or most goals that people want to achieve cannot be accomplished in two minutes but every habit can be started in less than two minutes. So, you know, if you have a habit like, I wanna read a book every week, well, you can downscale that into the first two minutes, which is I wanna read one page. And so then you just think about how can I read one page each day? Mm -hmm. um, and so one example is I tell people if they, when you make your bed in the morning, place a book on your pillow. So you wake up, make the bed, put a book on the pillow, go take a shower, get a cup of coffee or do whatever else you normally do. And then when you get ready to go to bed at night, there's a book waiting there for you to read one page and then turn the light off and go to sleep. Um, and a lot of this is about priming the environment for future use. And I think that that same idea and concept applies to writing as well. How can you prime your environment, wherever that happens to be that you're going to write, so that it's as easy as possible for you to do the first two minutes of the habit? Um, 
for me, I have a couple things that I do. The first one is I keep, I use Evernote for most of my writing and I keep a, a folder there of what any writing idea that I come across. So a cool story that I might write about at some point, if I have a title pop into my head for a, an article or a paragraph that I think I might want to write about in the future, I create a new note about that. If something comes up in this conversation, if you mention a story or tell me an example that I like, I'll add that. And then when I get ready to write, I'll go and I already have this kind of preloaded list of ideas and I'll go through it and see if I can connect one or two of them. If maybe they're about the same topic or something. And then I put those into a document and now I have something to start with. I'm not looking at a blank slate anymore. I have somewhere to go. Um, and so that is how I try to prime the writing environment so that it's as easy as possible for me to get into the next article and, and just get started. But the core idea here is, especially for the first few weeks or the first couple months, let's get the, the logistics figured out. When and where is this going to happen? And then how can we just make it as easy as possible to do a minute or two of the work? And once you master the art of showing up, then you're in a position where you can actually optimize and think about improving from there. Oh, this is so awesome. I'm just getting so much good stuff. And I know that my listeners are getting amazing stuff here. And, and I just love all of your ideas. And the it just makes it seem so doable. You know, everybody can do two minutes a day. You know, I've been saying five minutes a day, but you know, one or two minutes a day, whatever, you know, to, to uh, prime the pump there. Um, I think that's awesome. So um, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Sure. Well, let me just tell you a little bit about Atomic Habits. So this is the book that I, I just finished. And uh, if you enjoyed some of the ideas that we talked about today, I think you'll really love the book as well. The, the core philosophy of the book is, how to, is that getting 1% better each day compounds into remarkable results over time, which is what we talked about in the beginning. And in order to do that, we need a system. And a system is a set of processes and habits that guide us toward either a positive or a negative direction. And so the book is organized to be, it's heavily rooted in science, but it's written as a practical guide, as something that anyone can read and understand. You don't need to know the literature. Uh, you don't need to know the scientific research, but you can trust that it's grounded in science. And then I'm gonna try my best to deliver those ideas in easy to understand language and practical concepts and strategies that you can use for pretty much any habit. Certainly, I think it'd be very useful for writers but if you have, you know, habits that you want to build in your personal life or for your health or wellness, meditation, um, or habits that you want to build at work, whether it's being more productive um, or building better relationship habits, I think that the book can apply to broadly to, to any habit. And my hope is that by the time people get done, they have a framework where it's sort of like I'm giving you a set of levers and I can't predict which lever will move the needle in your life but now you have some that you can pull and the ones that make sense for you uh, are the ones that you can focus on. And um, yeah, I'm just, I'm really excited to share with people. I think that it's, it's highly practical and um, I thank you for the opportunity to talk a little bit about it today. Well, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much. If people wanna see uh, the book, they can check out atomichabits.com. In the writing world, November has come to be known as the time to sit down and write. On episode 84, I'll be talking about how to stay motivated when writing your memoir, and I'll unveil a spooky surprise too. Until next time, own your creativity for personal and professional success.